I'm Olympic and world champion diver, Laura Wilkinson, and this is the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Each week, we are unlocking the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual tools that help athletes reach their biggest goals in sports. Today's guest has spent the majority of his career dealing with injuries and pain, but he keeps persevering by getting creative. Brandon Lociavo is a three-time Big Ten champion, an NC2A champion, a seven-time U.S. national champion, a World Cup bronze medalist, and an Olympian. And after a brief retirement following the Tokyo Olympics, he is back for more with his eyes firmly set on the men's 10-meter platform diving in Paris 2024. In our conversation, Brandon talks about his college recruiting process, dealing with and working through pain and injuries, and the mindset that he adopted in order to achieve his goals at the Olympic trials. He also openly shares about how he got the very thing he wanted at the Olympics, but yet he felt like he got nothing at the same time. The Olympics and the post-Olympic season can be a really wild experience, and I think it's important that we listen to these Olympic athletes and how they navigate these crucial times because there are lessons for all of us in there. We also discuss his brief retirement from the sport, his brand new passion, and how everything seems to come down to the same choice. You can either pout or you can get creative. Brandon talks about changing his mindset during the episode and how that helped him stay focused on the right things in order to achieve his dreams. Simple mental skills and mindset shifts can make a huge difference in your confidence. If you want to start harnessing your mental game, but you're not sure where to start, I have the perfect gift for you. I've created a free guide with the top 10 mental skills that every athlete must have. It's a checklist, a guide, and a self-assessment to help you kickstart your journey to confidence. Go grab your copy over at laurawilkinson.com slash skills. That's laurawilkinson.com slash skills. Before we get started, make sure you smash that subscribe or follow button on your podcast player and tell your friends about this podcast. Share your favorite episodes with them so that we can continue to grow, to reach athletes who need us, and so that we can continue bringing you more resources, tools, and inspiration. All right, I believe that there's gold in your future, so let's dive on into this episode. Brandon Lasciavo, welcome to the Pursuit of Gold podcast. I'm so excited to have you on my show after I was just on your brand new show. Yeah, it was an absolute honor having you on. Again, like I said on that podcast, but you've been a hero to me. I'm excited to be on this one now. Yay. Well, let's go back to the beginning because we all know you're an amazing diver. You're an Olympian. You've been to world championships and world cups and all the good things. But I want to go back to like where it all started because it wasn't in the pool. Where did your sports journey begin? I started in gymnastics. That's really where my love of movement began. I was in gymnastics for about nine years at Scats Gymnastics in Huntington Beach. How old were you when you started gymnastics? I think I was about three or four. Oh, wow. When I started, I think I got onto their team at four or five and then just kind of went from there. That's super young. Is that like normal to be on a team that young? I don't know. I think that their standard of when they want kids starting and getting on more of like a national team was younger. I thought I was okay with gymnastics, not bad, but I didn't think I was anything special, but I did love moving and running around a lot. And so I stuck with it for quite a bit. Well, what kind of made you think this isn't like, did you get burned out? Did you get hurt? Did you just want to try something else? Like at what point did you decide it was time to like switch gears? I loved gymnastics, loved doing all the different apparatuses, but the whole sheer body was just kind of taking quite a beating. The wrists were starting to get kind of hammered. 
low back. And like, I was so young. I was like, this doesn't feel like this should be happening. It started with kind of like injuries. And then the coaching was a little too intense for me. And then even, I feel like the gymnastics culture has changed a lot recently. They seem a lot more like team oriented and like everyone's cheering for one another. And that could just be in front of the cameras. But for behind the scenes for me, when I was in gymnastics, it was pretty ugly. Again, like I'm not the biggest kid. And even when I was growing up, I was extremely small. So, you know, I was kind of getting bullied a little bit, not a bunch, but it would happen here and there. And I just, I wasn't in love with the culture. So I saw a little flyer to go to Debbie McCormick's summer camp in, uh, where was the original pool in Long Beach? Yeah. I don't know. You dove at that pool, right? I've done a diving show in that pool. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I went to that little summer camp and tried it and people were smiling. Everyone was super nice to one another. I didn't know I had to wear a Speedo, but (laughs) that was pushed upon me as I actually committed to the team. Of course, they tell you that after you commit, right? (laughs) It was after. They're like, oh, you should put this on. I was like, I thought that was just for the weird guys that were doing that. (laughs) How, How old were you? I went to that camp, I think around 12. And then at 12, I kind of fell in love with it. So I kept going but I fully made the transition around 13 years old. On a side note, that pool in Long Beach, isn't that where they're going to build like the 2028 pool or is that different now? I thought that was a campaign for a while. I think it was a campaign for a while. Okay, They've had so many different campaigns to get the pool back there. But to my understanding, I was told that they were just going to put the new pool right next to the current pool at USC, like on the baseball field. Oh, interesting. But I could be wrong. Well, we'll have to have Janet Evans or someone on here that's on that 2028 committee and let us know what's going on. So then we'll know all the things because we got to know about all the pools. That that should be our number one priority is like, what's happening with the pools? (laughs) 100%. (laughs) You switched gears. It was fun. It sounds like it was a really good environment, which is awesome. And Debbie's super sweet. But was she your coach? Was she your first coach? Yeah. So Debbie McCormick and Charlie Collins were my first two coaches. So good environment. You apparently decided it was good enough to brave the Speedo. What was your trajectory like? Did you get really good really fast and like jump on like the junior world circuit or something? Or was it slow going? What was your first few years like in the sport? I like my beginning because again, I love the motivational side. I love talking to younger athletes, but I wasn't terrible, but I wasn't good. I never made a junior meet once. Oh, wow. Like junior nationals, you mean, or what junior meet are you mean? International junior competitions. I struggled to make finals at those junior nationals or really do anything. So for me, it was just a slow burn. I just really loved the sport and I loved diving. My hero was David Dinsmore when I first started diving. And when he first started talking to me, I was blown away. I was like, little old me, I I don't know why you're talking to me. (laughs) So my junior career was unmemorable to say the least. I can relate to that. My first junior meet was in 1618. <laughs> and I was like, uh, this is hard. <laughs> like, these, these girls are really good. And I'm just like trying to do one and a halves here. But yeah, I didn't do much on that either. So when did you feel like you really kind of, I don't know, kind of broke through when you started diving? Did you still have like big Olympic aspirations or were you just kind of like, I just enjoy it and I'm going to see where it takes me? I'm a big pipe stream guy. So i kind of got in. The reason why I definitely wanted to try diving too was I remember watching 2012. I don't really remember it, but I just remember watching the finalists, the top 12 walk in and the whole lineup. And I thought that was the most incredible thing. I got obsessed with diving. I got into diving. I wanted to be one of those top 12 divers in the world. And so funny enough, I actually 
I wrote a list in my phone of my Olympic list. Over time, it took me a super long time, obviously, because it took me about two years to jump off 10 itself. <laughs> I remember just taking off each dive one at a time until I got the whole thing. It took me a super long time, but I was always, I don't know if I was delusional, but you know, I was excited. I've had that goal. I had that aspiration to make it to the Olympics. And I just put my head down and grinded for the long haul. So take me back because you're saying you wrote your Olympic list that you wanted on your phone. You wanted to be like those those top 12 in the world, but you didn't even jump off 10 meter. Like, was this before that? Yeah, it was before it. You wouldn't jump off 10 meter and you already had your Olympic list in mind of what you wanted to do. Yeah, <laughs> I was so enthralled with 10 meter. I was so obsessed with it. Every time I'd walk in to that pool in Long Beach, I remember looking up at the 10 meter, staring at it until I passed it. And I would always, I would walk up to the 10 meter, I would crawl to the end and then decide I wasn't going to jump because I was too afraid. And then I'd go back down. And that was my every day until I jumped off. You did that every day? <laughs> because Charlie, I think Charlie had a really good point, but he was like, just go up there every day. It'll seem lower and it's not going to be as terrifying, which I agree. Over time. Yeah. Yeah. The time really helped. But I had that list before I even jumped off. And how many days was every day looking at that and then coming back down? Every day until I jumped off. So you're looking close to two years. And then right as I got off at, mm, I probably got front three and a half pike and arm stand double off of that platform. And then I went to Mission Viejo with Janet. We're looking at two years. It's like, what, 720, 30 days that's a long time of going up there, looking down and just walking back down. Yeah. I love it. I'm not even sure where to go with that because I just love the consistency, though, that you still weren't doing it, but you would still go up there every day. And I'm guessing your coaches were still encouraging you to do that every day. And they were patient with you. Did at any point they were like, dude, would you just jump off? I mean, did they lose like, it? Yes and no. I mean, they always wanted me to, but I feel like Charlie and Janet were just so good at, like you said, being patient. They tried to get creative with me. Like I told you on my podcast, they they brought my brother <laughs> onto 10 meter and they're like, hey, if you don't jump off when you make it to the Olympics, he's going to be able to hold this over your head forever. And <laughs> lo and behold, he can still do that to me. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. I love it. <laughs> now, what, what sport is your brother in? We all started in gymnastics and then he went into track and field and then he ended in pole vaulting. Wow. My sister actually dove with me for probably about a year. And I tell everyone this, and I mean this too, if she stuck with it, she'd be 10 times the diver that I am. She was so good. She was so talented. It was unbelievable. She blows me out of the water when it comes to talent in diving, but she wanted more of a team sport. And so she also went to pole vaulting too. Just because you have talent for something doesn't mean it's your passion or what you want to like give your whole life to. I saw my daughter doing that because she has a lot of my same abilities. And I saw her try diving and I saw her try gymnastics and she was really good at both of them right at the beginning. But, you know, it just wasn't her thing. She kind of similarly was wired for a team sport. She's very social. She needs that interaction. And she like has fallen in love with volleyball now, which is so cool and really nice that I really don't know much about the sport. So I get to watch from a very clear, neutral place in the bleachers. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, you finally kind of gotten your 10 meter stuff while you're starting to get these 10 meter dives. So you were still doing that as a junior. And how was it getting recruited to Purdue? Because Purdue was really strong already by the time you got recruited to go there, wasn't it? Yeah. So that's where I kind of got lucky was, I think I told you this, I was more afraid of Janet than I was of 10 meter. Like when I got to mission, 
and I love Janet and it worked. It was super good. I, she just terrified me and she got me to get, <laughs> she got me to get a whole list off of 10 meter. So again, we're just running through reps and I'm just like trying to catch up to all these divers that have been kind of popping off for quite a bit since juniors. That's when everything kind of clicked for me was my junior year of high school. And so I actually went to an OSU nationals, I think it was 2014 and in the prelim and the semi beat steel. So I was winning. I didn't know how to deal with uh, finals nerves and I let steel beat me by like a few points. I came out of nowhere, nothing, nothing. And then boom, it was just this one meet to where it clicked for me. Was that your first senior nationals too? That might've been my second. It was like my second or third senior. I'm pretty sure it was my second senior nationals. My first one was in um, Tennessee, which was, I'm pretty sure it was 2013. I just kind of came out of nowhere that meet. I got put on tier one and then I accidentally stole Adam's chair. And that's how I met Adam. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So just to back up for those who may not be divers listening, Steele Johnson, 2016 Olympian and Olympic silver medalist in synchro with Olympic champion, David Budaya. Both who hail from Purdue. Adam Soldati is the coach at Purdue, who also used to coach at the Woodlands, where I'm from. So we are good friends with Adam and his wife, Kimiko. She was my matron of honor and a good friend and synchro partner and all those things. We're real close with the Purdue peeps. I also have to back up because it just makes me laugh that Janet scared you more than 10 meter because Janet is like the sweetest person and I can't see her scaring people, but that's just oh awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, the funny part too is how she would come in and tell you that you were doing a new dive. This happened to me once. It was, again, it, I didn't get to move on until I did the dive, but I'd probably done arm stand one and a half twist, which already kind of scared me, but I was starting to get comfortable and confident with it. I probably had it for like two months, three months max. And she came in, she said, you know, I had a dream about you last night and I think we're going to add a twist to that arm stand. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sitting there like, no, no, no. Like, like no, today? No. Like right now? <laughs> right now. And so I freaked out and I thought I was going to land flat on my face for the seven meter prep. So I got to stay on that arm stand prep for three days straight until I did it. Oh my goodness. If I didn't get it off, I got kicked out of practice, came back, kicked out, came back. And then I just got it off. Took it up to 10 and that's where it started. Wow. Okay. So now I'm seeing the other side of Janet. This is so fun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm getting a very well-rounded view now. I love it. Yeah. So you stole Adam's chair. You beat Steele in the prelims and semis at the meet. Was that back when you could be recruited your junior year or was that before that? I'm a little bit older because I know now it's like you could talk to sophomores and then recruiting starts junior year. Right. Right. Mine was like the end of your junior year. And then you go on your recruiting trip, your senior year. Okay, so that was perfect timing then. Literally perfect timing, hands down. That's cool. Wow. So were you just like, I mean, yes, like I'm all in Purdue. Like, did you even look at other schools? Like, what was the recruiting process like for you? Because I know a lot of people trying to navigate that. You know, it's like, do I go for my dream school? Do I look at all the others? Do I just put all my eggs in one basket? Like, how did you navigate the recruiting process? I never even heard of Purdue until I stole Adam's trip. <laughs> like, I knew of David Badiah and Steele Johnson, but I don't know. I like just didn't really look at schools yet. I was just so zoned into what I had to do. Once I got to that meet and I met him, thankfully enough, Joey Safeli, a very good friend of mine, kind of introduced me and that's where he decided to go to school. And so that's how I kind of got to know Purdue. And again, I'm from California, so that's a big move for me. I mean, my mom wanted, like really wanted me to go to USC. I'm close to home. Mm -hmm. She likes that school. <laughs> but once I met Adam, once I kind of knew what he's been able to do with divers, 
my main goal was to make it to the Olympics. And I thought it was kind of a no-brainer for me. I went on other recruiting trips. I went to Michigan, Texas, USC. I was going to go to Miami, but I was just so fed up with not going to Purdue and getting on my recruiting trip. And I was starting to get freaked out because, you know, all these other divers were committing. And so I saw like, you know, scholarships going and I was like, I need to go now. And so I didn't even go on a recruiting weekend. I just, my mom called Adam was like, Hey, can you just come up this weekend? And, uh, I flew up, we had a makeshift, uh, recruiting trip. And then I committed. I even remember going on my first trip, which was USC. I had a swimmer come up to me. He's like, so like, are you going to commit here? Is this your favorite place? And I looked down and went, can't wait to go to Purdue. <laughs> like, I don't care about the school at all. Pretty obsessed with Adam. I could tell he was more family-based. It already kind of felt like home and I'd never even been there yet. That's cool. Yeah, I was instantly very committed without committing yet. I mean, it sounds like you had this picturesque dream of what Purdue was going to be like in your head. Was it everything you thought it was going to be or was it a little bit different? Initially, I had no idea. I'd never been to Indiana, but I remember flying to my trip and it was kind of like a magical moment for me, like seeing all this beautiful green and like this open space. It was just different. And I think I was okay with different. And so I was actually excited with something that I wasn't entirely used to, which is beaches and being smashed next to one another in California. But I was fine with whatever came at me. And uh, yeah, it was different. It was definitely a huge culture shock. I wasn't used to people being like nice to me on the street, freaking out. <laughs> like, what are you doing here? Are you trying to get money from me? Like, what is this? <laughs> but yeah, I loved it. Oh man. Well, it seems like once you hit Purdue, you kind of have this skyrocket to success. I mean, you start winning big tens, eventually NCAA title. You're winning U.S. national titles by both synchro and individual. Like, what were your kind of college years like, both with college and with the U.S. scene? Like, because you're really just starting to blossom. I mean, were you just like on fire? Were there ups and downs? Was it pretty much just like the straight shot trajectory up to like being amazing? <laughs> what was it like? Uh, yeah, no, definitely the farthest thing from a straight shot. It was hard. I mean, I never did back twist, one and a half twist. I, I remember doing it once at Mission for one practice and then never doing it again. What twister were you doing? A double in. Oh, interesting. It was always my thought to do triple in, but my patellar tendonitis was so bad that I had no choice to then go to back twist. But my whole senior year was ruined. I didn't dive my senior year of high school. Because of your knee? Yeah, the knees were so bad. I broke my scaphoid at a synchro nationals. I was doing it with uh, Dinsmore. Oh, wow. Against Dave and Steele. And then just on a front three and a half pike, did a lineup, my wrist was gone. Wow. Honestly, the whole journey of getting to where I am now was a lot of lows, some strategic, I call them strategic highs because most of my time at Purdue was dealing with these knees. And so I, I tell a lot of people this, but I got lucky and unlucky because I could walk up to 10 right now and chuck a front and know for a fact I'll land on my head because I only had one front a week to do. And if I did any more than that, I would usually, I would say, just blow out my knee. My knee would like, my tendon would pop and I wouldn't be able to walk on it if I pushed it too much. I did that for practically my whole career. It was just a lot of struggling through injuries. It taught me a lot about myself though. And it taught me a lot about self-research and really not being stagnant with not just like my own results within the weight room or the diving well, but making sure that what I'm getting is exactly what I need. And you need to decide that. I had other people deciding that for me. And I finally just flicked the switch and said no more. 
when did you switch the flip, uh, flip the switch? I can't talk. (laughs) That was probably around my junior year. I started asking around a lot, be at US nationals, or I would just kind of reach out to athletic trainers that I thought were brilliant and smart. And I made sure to talk to anyone and everyone that I could get my hands on. And most of it was at other meets and stuff like that. And so I got really creative with who I got to talk to and then just self-research. And I ended up falling into like the barefoot shoe movement. I ended up utilizing these patches for heart attacks. I would I'd put them on my knees. Really? Yeah. Enables uh, blood flow, nitroglycerin patches. Wow. And I was just trying to do anything to keep me in the diving well. I mean, there's a good amount of pictures, but while I was diving at Purdue, even internationally, I had to put knee braces on because my knees literally just couldn't withstand the impact. And then I fell into the strength training side and all of these things. Sadly, the strength training side was after I was done, or I guess my pseudo retirement after Tokyo. Yeah, it was a lot of learning ups and downs, and I'm still learning now, but that's kind of my whole big story is just kind of persevering through injury. How do you keep from getting discouraged in that? Because it sounds like it's most of the time, or at least it was most of the time. It was really hard. I guess I was just so eager to not let an injury hold me back that it was just not an option for me. I will do one front a week. I had to do inwards on Monday, fronts on Friday. And so I got two inwards and one front, and I'm going to get as good as I can within these limitations. And so I can get as frustrated as I want, but that's just wasting energy. I don't really have time to waste And so I just, you got to get creative. You either pout or get creative. And I just decided to get creative. Oh, I like that. Pout or get creative. That's awesome. After 2004, I had a wrist surgery, completely botched wrist surgery. I didn't know at the time um, in early 2005. And I didn't know if I was going to keep going, but we had world championships that year. And I, I was really frustrated to just be like a handful of points off the podium in 2004. So I was like, I at least want to go to Worlds and try to end better. But I always had a lot of pain coming out of the surgery. And, you know, I thought it was just normal recovery from surgery because I'd never had a wrist surgery before. But I had lost all range of motion. I couldn't bend my wrist at all anymore. I had to do my handstand like up on my fingertips and kind of like tripod it with my thumb on one hand. It was super painful hitting, you know, and so I can kind of relate, you know, in a different way, but I couldn't you know, some days I could get 10 dives off 10 meters. Some days it was one and that was it. Like I could just take one impact and it was bad. And so I I would be out and it really forced me to get a little creative, kind of like you're saying, powder, get creative. It was like, well, this is all I can do. Like every one might be my last dive. I don't know when my last dive is going to be. So it forced me to do quality over quantity. Like if I get one dive today, I have to risk making the changes, right? I have to be brave enough to do exactly what I need to do to hit this dive. It like forced my brain in a different place. And at that world championships, I don't know about you, but I'm a really bad prelims, but diver, like, I don't know. I'm just notoriously bad, but I'm great in finals. Like I'll light it up. And Kenny is always like, well, you got to get to the finals to be a finals diver. So maybe we should work on prelims. But at that world championship, because my focus was so different and every dive was like in my head, my last dive, I ended up winning the prelims. I was able to keep that hold like through the finals and stuff. It's amazing how when you're forced, like you said, to be creative, you can do incredible things sometimes. It might look weird to people watching. It might be, it's scary to you. I think at least for me, sometimes it was scary to do weird things that no one else is doing because first of all, you feel like you look stupid and you don't know if it's going to work and you're kind of taking this gamble, but you don't have another choice. For me too, I was fine. Like the barefoot shoes, for example, socially back then just wasn't the most accepted. It looked kind of weird. The toe box is (laughs) Mm -hmm. wider. And so I just had to accept that part. And I tried to express to people like, hey, it just makes me feel like, 
10 to 15% better after practice. My knees get to like actually recover a little bit. And they're like, oh, well, yeah, like the shoes look really weird. I agree. But (laughs) if they help you, then like, cool, I guess. Like no one really made fun of the shoes that much. But like, again, when they do, it's just different. So I understand it's funny. Mm -hmm. But for the medical side, that's when dogma starts to fall in. That's when it's the most important to have conversations. And there's a lot of people in my life on the medical side that were either really, really open to it and were great to talk to. And some of them were horrible. But again, like both scenarios were incredibly beneficial for me because I got to learn how to deal with someone that's a little bit more closed-minded. And then vice versa, I got to really go in with someone else that has a medical background to flourish a little bit more. You know, the whole experience itself was just honestly fantastic. And I, I wouldn't change it because I just learned so much about myself and then how to interact with other people. What advice would you give for athletes who are dealing with injuries like that and medical stuff? I mean, do you just say get like a ton of opinions? How do you navigate what is the best decision for you? I definitely think trust the person that's helping you at the time. I think that's important to give them a chance, but also recognize if it's not working after a month or two, and I know I understand that's quick, but if you're not really feeling any sort of change, let that be even a few percent in your body, something, a release in tension, whatever that is, it's not a bad thing to ask around and just to get other opinions. So yeah, I would say get other opinions, look into it yourself, which is another important one. All the information I found for my knees was out the ballpark. Most medical professionals or even most athletic trainers, physical therapists weren't doing the things that I was doing. It worked for me though. You have to find what works with your body and it takes time to figure that out because it's very hard. Research, do a lot of research and ask a lot of different people. You'll kind of find this, again, I think logic is found in the middle. You'll find this right or perfect step for you once you've gotten enough opinions. That's really good. Thank you. Kind of going back to like the diving and competition side of things, like you did a lot of synchro at the beginning when you really kind of started making these big strides to like winning nationals and stuff. Do you feel like synchro was really helpful in certain ways for you kind of getting started on that scene? 100%. I mean, I I wouldn't be where I am without synchro. That even started before I really got to that higher performance level is first I started with a teammate of mine, Tarek, and then I moved to my teammate, Mark, for a little bit and then went with Dinsmore, then Steele, was with Bediah for a little bit, but then he transitioned down to Springboard. But I was always utilizing better people. For me, like that's how I cut the learning curve was synchro. My technique had to get better. I had to be more consistent. And then, you know, it was on to the next. Once I got better, I got to move up. And it was incredibly important for me to be able to kind of siphon a lot of these divers' knowledge. It was an incredible learning curve for me. That's cool to hear. And I know a lot of us kind of come up through synchro. And I think it really gives people confidence too. When you learn that you can do it standing next to somebody, then you start to feel like, well, I can do this on my own too. I came up diving with somebody who is better than me also. One of my teammates, Patty, she was a national champion at the time. My coach's wife, Kenny, like I had just started 10 meter. And so I was up with her and I was intimidated because she was the national champion, you know, and it was a lot, but it did. It made me stand up and learn and try to be at her level all the time. But then I think there's that confidence that kind of shifts 
when synchro athletes come up and then start to go into individual, like a little more confidently into individual. I feel like I've just seen that so much. How does it feel though? When sometimes do you ever have to switch partners back and forth? Cause I know with injuries or with people coming and going, or sometimes with a high performance director, at least they used to handpick synchro. I don't know how they're doing it today, but like, what is your experience with that? And are you still even doing synchro? Yeah. Originally it would kind of get pushed around. We would just try to like find what the better team was. Initially, Steele didn't have a synchro partner anymore now that Badia was gone. I mean, I had to learn back two and a half, two and a half without doing the one and a half twist. <laughs> like that was my only way to do synchro steel. And steel oh was goodness. substantially better than me. And again, it's like synchro is an easier way to get into the ring with the big dogs. I learned back two and a half, two and a half, got my 109 back up since I, I hadn't done it for well over a year. And then I jumped into synchro. So it was more so kind of taking anyone that was willing to do synchro with me at the time. And then kind of once you shimmy your way up the rankings, you can be a little bit more selective, but I kind of always left it up to my coaches to choose. Before Tokyo, there was more of like a decision to be made for me, but this time around, I'm not making any decisions. I'm letting high performance and my coaches do that. So I'm open for synchro and I might jump back into it, but we'll see as of right now. And I'm just trying to focus on staying healthy and get my dives off. Let's kind of back up to the journey toward Tokyo. COVID hit when you were like a senior, didn't it? Yeah. So I specifically took an Olympic gap year and then COVID happened during that year. So I was like, oh, nice. There goes that year. <laughs> so you don't get that Olympic waiver back again, do you? No. Oh no. my goodness. So you weren't competing because I know some people were like sent home like mid or right before NCAAs, right? Mm -hmm. That was such a crazy time. So how did you feel when all that happened? When the world shut down and they're like, nope, no Olympics this year. We're going to wait a year. I don't know. I, I was okay with it. I like to just kind of roll with the punches because I knew everyone else was being kind of equally affected by it. And I like to utilize things. It was uh, Scott Doney, right? Pray for mm -hmm. rain. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I was like, all right, well, everyone's going to be in this position. No one's training right now. So maybe for once in my life, I get to actually come down and take a break, which I did. And I got to take a break. It felt nice on my knees. There was things that I still wanted to tweak and work out. And so I was like, this is fine. This gives me more time to get better and get ready. Simple as that. And so... I just tried to utilize it as best as I could. So it didn't really like affect you too negatively or anything? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, it kind of sucked that everything got shut down, but like I got to spend time with family and then, you know, I kind of got to be a slob for once in my life. And so, <laughs> you know, I just, I just tried to enjoy that for once. Nice. <laughs> Because I feel like so many people were so dramatically affected. So it's nice to hear like, and you seem like you're just a guy who's pretty, I wouldn't say laid back because I think you're like very focused on what you're doing, but your personality is a little more like, yeah, I'm good. You know, like just roll with the punches. It seems like really well. So that was probably to your advantage, I'm guessing. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure that like at some point, again, it's like you have to decide like what route are you going to take? Are you going to take the depressing, sad, woe is me? Or can you just take the other route is how can I utilize this time to actually relax, come down, almost have this as like a long stay vacation. That's how I just thought about it. It was like, I'm going to take the positive route because this is a really bad, depressing time. And so how can we kind of just flip that on its head? You can powder get creative, right? Yeah, powder <laughs> get creative. I like getting creative. <laughs> for those of you who don't know the story he's referring to, the Pray for Rain that Scott Donia was talking about, go back and listen to Michael Hickson's episode because he talks about it in full detail. And 
I don't want to rehash it. I think you need to go back and listen to that episode because he just tells it so well. Okay, so you have this great attitude. You're going to use this to your advantage. But now you have to go in instead of having an Olympic waiver, you're competing collegiately that season right before the trials in 2021. So how was that adjustment? I just utilized it as more competing. I think I did. Yeah, I did a little bit of three meter. We skipped one meter and I just made sure that I felt ready. And I actually think it was fine. I just had to really make sure that I wasn't overdoing it on volume with springboard, but we didn't because I just chucked everything at the comps. And then 10 meter was just utilize it as, you know, good training. And that's what we did. How did you feel like going into Olympic trials and everything? That was your first Olympic trials, right? Yeah, because 2016 Olympic trials, which I was very eager and excited to compete at, I broke my wrist right before it. And so I couldn't compete. They told me they were like, you could either compete in excruciating pain or we can put a screw through your scaphoid and then you'll heal. I just chose the surgery because it hurt way too much. So I was like, this isn't even worth it. I'm not going to line up for anything. That's not smart. This was the first Olympic trials, but I was really working a lot with the sports psych beforehand. And then just how Adam and I built my mind around Olympic trials. It wasn't Olympic trials to me. It was my warm up for Tokyo. Ooh, I like that. Tell me more about that. Originally, when I first met with the sports psychologist, I was waking up in the middle of the night having panic attacks about arm stand. Historically, has always freaked me out. Like that dive, I could never conceptualize doing it in my mind. And something that I've been able to do recently that has helped me, funny enough, is I had to stop modeling before. I don't do any modeling for any of my dives anymore. And that's completely changed how I walk into any of my dives on 10 meter. The utility of that, just to explain it for people, I always ask this question back. Do you model for a gainer flip in dryland? Do you model for a backflip? Usually not. And then I equate it to the Chinese. Do you ever see them really modeling when they're on 10 meter? They just walk up, they get to the end, they do their dive for nine and a half tenths, and then they walk down and move on. So I was like, I need to emulate that confidence. There has to be some way that I can grab onto that. So that's what I did there with the no modeling. But back to the sports psych is what we noticed was I was holding on to this Olympic dream so tightly that it was actually pulling me down. I had to learn to let go. If I didn't make it, it's going to be okay. That's okay. And I learned this even after Tokyo. It's not about the one thing. It's not about Olympic trials. It's not about going to the Olympics, this one final little journey. It's about the practices that you have, laughing with your teammates, having a good time, learning about yourself. All of these little pieces are actually what really make our athletic journey what it is. It's not the one moment, the one last moment. And so I learned to let go. I learned to hyper-focus on what is important, which was my mindset going into it. So let go of making it, but utilize it then as this is my perfect warmup. I already made it. And so that helped me let go of it. We wanted to make sure that the prelim, the semi, and the final kind of went exactly the same. I, I want to walk into the prelim feeling like it's the final. Again, you don't want to just kind of like mosey through the prelim because then you'll do terribly. And it's a cumulative event. So every list counts. And so my goal was to go 18 for 18. I don't have to hit every dive for 10s. That's when you mess up. Let's do 18 dives the way I know how to do it. Just dive like practice. 
I ended up missing my 18th dive, my last dive, which was really depressing. It was funny because I was well over a hundred points. So like I could have jumped off and made it practically, but I started thinking about the score, which I wasn't doing the entire competition. I think Badaya looked at Adam and said, Hey, he's going to fly over on his back for this 109. <laughs> and because I want, I was like, if I hit this dive, I could go like 530. That'd be a PR for me and be a really cool way to make it to the Olympics. And I threw as hard as I possibly could, a little down, piked out and washed over for like 30 points. And so you just heard these kind of like quiet claps, like he made it, I guess. <laughs> like it was just kind of like, ooh. Overall though, I was proud of it. I was like, Again, it's not the last dive that matters. It's all 18. I did 17 out of 18 well enough to just keep me not just in the game, but like well above second. That was my whole goal. Again, walking into Tokyo, I don't have to be crazy until the final. So I just had to stay consistent. Sadly enough, in Tokyo, I actually ran into my knee issue again. I felt perfect all the way up, all the warm ups, no problems. And then the morning of the prelim, I blew out my knee and I thought I was going to have to pull out. It was that bad. But thanks to our medical staff and Kelly, our massage therapist, who just did some magical stuff and a lot of drugs, which I usually, I will never take only in dire situations. I took that and it was able to get me into the final. But again, sadly for the final, I was just so mentally and physically drained from taking all these drugs, being so on edge. Am I going to be able to dive this next? I had to chuck every single front and inward again. And then for once, this was different. Every squat into my dive hurt a lot. My distance was getting a lot better and back twist and I was in a really good spot. And then I hurt my knee. And so sitting on top of the platform in the right position wasn't possible. It hurt a lot. You know, everything I'd been working for kind of got thrown in my face. But I think the exciting part for me, the lesson here was be consistent and do what you can. And that got me into the final. I didn't do well in the final, but I was able to get into the final. You know, my initial goal was make it into the final. Let's go top five. I didn't get that, but at least I got into the final. And so there's pieces to be proud of, even within that journey that wasn't exactly what I wanted. For sure. And then 10 meter platform, the finals. I mean, that's a beastly group of men. Like it's always an amazing group of men performing in that. So that is an honor to be a part of that. So congratulations on that part. Did you learn that lesson right away or were you immediately having to grieve a little bit? You know what I mean? It took me a long time to get to that conclusion. It was really really hard to swallow that pill because again, it's, I have a film coming out on this, but it's one thing to get everything you want, but nothing that you want at the same time. Like I looked up to these 12 incredible divers and this was 2012, which was an incredible era of diving. And so you really didn't see any bad diving in that final, even 12th place. I would have been proud to be 12th. Like it was just incredible diving. I guess that's all I wanted to do was just dive it didn't have to be the best. I just, I wanted to dive like I knew how to dive. So leaving that, that's why I told Adam when I looked at him, I was like, I'm not coming back. I'm done. I can't keep diving with this knee problem. And that's the reality of it. I couldn't. And so I left for about four months, did a lot of knee rehab and- And you'd already graduated too, right? Yeah, already graduated. I drove home to California. I just had time to like really come down to baseline. And just kind of like see that there's more than just diving. 
outside of diving and there's life to be had. That was really helpful for me. And then fixing my knee, I started climbing a lot. Like rock climbing? Yeah, I'm obsessed with it. It's my favorite. <laughs> I can't wait to climb a bunch once I'm done. But I would land on the floor after finishing a climb, which was like 10 feet. And I would have no pain. I was like, I think all this, you know, knees over toes training, surprisingly enough, is is actually working. And so I went to mission with John. Had you just started that kind of training after Tokyo? Yeah, after Tokyo, when I got home, I was like, I need to fix this knee. Like it has to fix just for life itself. Like I don't want to keep dealing with this. Like I can't do this. And so I got to find, you know, a pseudo mentor. I didn't, I didn't get to talk to him, but I got to go through some of his programming and fix a lot of my problems that were there. Went back to Mission Viejo and started playing. And I was like, oh, wow, like it doesn't hurt. So I went back to Purdue to get serious. And, you know, here we are. Well, so how long was that break between like driving back home, finding life outside the pool, which it's funny we have to say that, but it's true when you're a hyper-focused athlete on these huge goals, you know, there's life outside of it, but you kind of forget how to live it, you know? (laughs) So I totally get that. But how long was that break and kind of playing around and realizing I want to get back to Purdue and give this another go? It's probably about three, three and a half months. I even remember calling Adam and Dave saying, I'm done, I'm retired. And then deeper, I think it was like a month or two in, I called them. And then like a month to a month and a half after, I just was like, oh, let me go play for the hell of it, see what will happen. It was fun because I didn't have the stress of having to make it to the Olympics and all of these things. And it, it didn't hurt, which was kind of the big piece there. I was like, this doesn't hurt. Yeah, it was about like about four months. Driving home was a magical experience for me because I got to have more time, more silence to myself to think. I've made driving from Indiana to California about two, two and a half weeks. I went to all these national parks. I went backpacking. I did all these things I've been wanting to do for so long. You know, most of that trip for me was done by myself, which was kind of like a healing experience for me. I bet. So few people will even take that time to themselves. Like that's huge that you did that. We need, we need that alone time to process, especially after such a big thing like that. You know, it's life-changing, life-altering. What do I do with my life now? Like that just, yeah, we need time to process that stuff. It felt good to find a new community. And I did for at least uh, probably like the first two, three months. I made it a goal to not be defined as a diver when I was outside of diving. So I actually didn't tell anyone I dove. I didn't tell anyone that I made it to the Olympics because what does that really have to do with climbing and making friends? For once, I got to pull myself out of this bubble, become a human that isn't defined by diving alone. And so I think that's when I got to look back and and really kind of digest everything that happened. So what's it been like as you've gotten back into the swings of things? Like, does your knee feel totally better? Are you still kind of dealing with it and being creative and and how you're proceeding forward? Like, what does training look like now? For quite a long time, I was doing my own programming, which I was really happy about for in the strength room. So I was doing my own strength training. And then, you know, sometimes you mess up. Sometimes you write a program that's not the smartest for that time. And sadly enough, I did that right before we went to world championships. This year? Yeah, which really <laughs> affected me. Oh, no. Yeah, it was bad. So I kind of like re-hurt my knee there and then was trying, again, I was on that survival mode again, which just destroyed me. I made some smart decisions. Coaches need coaches. And so I decided to have the Team USA strength coach be my strength coach and write my programs. He's an incredibly intelligent human being. So he's been writing my programs. My knees have been feeling very good. 
I've had some little injuries since. I accidentally stepped on the side of my foot walking out of my apartment. I know the most athletic thing and I sprained my foot. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, I've just been like walking. I've been dealing with just little injuries, but overall, the experience has been fantastic. I've written my own strength training programs. I've kind of done most of my own physical therapy, but like worked alongside athletic trainers, physical therapists, strength coaches, and I've learned so much. I've learned so much and it's just been really fun. This time around, it's been really fun to, you know, help others and not just be so horse blinders on just myself, but kind of pulling in other people into this journey. So are you coaching other people as well with their strength training and stuff? I was helping some local divers for a little bit. And then again, right before world championships, I was doing way too much. I was helping diving teams, like their core workouts, their strength workouts, their mobility. And then I had in-person clients. And then I was helping the Purdue team at Purdue. And I was doing too much. I hurt myself. So what I learned was, hey, this final year is about me being a pro athlete. So you have to be a pro athlete. You can't be a coach, a full-time coach and a full-time athlete. So I've walked back since. I've been helping a few teams online and been writing their programs. I've noticed a lot of programming is not sports specific. And so I've worked with some strength coaches and talked to them. And we've really recognized that the amount of volume that a lot of teams do in their dry land is too much. It's way too much. You're getting too much spinal flexion. So what ends up happening is you get a lot of low back injuries because you have to bring your low back into it and then it's just too much. So we're overloading our abs thinking that we're strengthening them, but that's muscular endurance. That's not power work. It's not speed work. We've really had to look at how we've loaded the athletes. And so what I've done with our team at Purdue is just really made sure sometimes, yes, I incorporate more volume, but it's not always about volume because again, when we go in the water, what are we doing? We're doing more core. We're doing more abs. I didn't even think about it as a strength training program for the longest time, but now I make sure we have a dedicated week for a big deload. For weights, usually you, when you deload, you want to either decrease volume and keep intensity the same or even lift it up just a little bit. It's dependent on the individual. But what I've recognized is the deloads for core is very, very important. I can bring down the volume just a little bit and then keep that intensity, but then we go in the water and do just as much. And so you're not really deloading. So what I do is I'll take our sets anywhere from three to four all the way down to one. And I've really made sure that, hey, like this week, let everything recover, low back, shoulders. Again, your core isn't just your abs. It's your shoulders down to your pelvic girdle. There's a lot there. It's been a fantastic journey learning all these things and incorporating it into my own business and then just helping other people, other teams. So is that like kind of how you're supporting yourself now that you're out of college and you've still got another year left? Because I mean, divers, you know, don't always make the most money, if any money at all. Is that a hard balance now outside of school trying to try? Because like you said, like you could coach a lot, but then you're also spreading yourself too thin and you've got you can't focus on training as much. Like, is that are you finding that right balance, but to still be able to support yourself to do this final year? Is this your last year or do you think you'll keep going after this too? I have lots of questions. <laughs> this is definitely my last year, <laughs> but I get lucky. I'd be, I'd be lying to say that my parents have been gracious enough to support me within this journey. And again, I get lucky too. I'm not in LA. So my rent here in Indiana is unbelievably cheap. So I've been able to utilize my parents giving me some help, me starting my own business. 
yeah, we get a little bit, we get some change from USA diving and, you know, the whole diving world. So yeah, it's enough to support me and get me through. And again, it's enough to where I don't have to kill myself in business to make sure that I'm able to like keep diving. Something I was going to ask you, but it sounds like it's working out pretty well. Cause like this time with the COVID, you know, postponement and everything, there's only three years between the Olympic Games, you know, because then our next one's coming up in 2024. Is that good for you? Is that good that it's not as much time that you can like recover and be healthy enough for that? How do you feel? Cause I, for me, I, I don't know. Like, cause sometimes there's that decompression year or two that you have to go through before you come back. So, you, you know, I'm kind of interested to see how the athletes feel with just the three year gap. I had less than that too, because the four months kind of perfectly took me out of that entire year. So I wasn't even able to go to the nationals to qualify for 2017 Budapest world champs. So I got- 2017? Uh, sorry, <laughs> 2017. So we're going back in time. <laughs> yeah. What is that? Uh, 2021 two? or two? Yeah. Wherever that ended up. <laughs> yeah. Oops. I'm, I'm all over the place. <laughs> but that was the Budapest that I went to. I think it's perfect. The time that I had off, like I didn't do anything in the pool. I just got to climb for hours every day and just kind of decompress and try to find what my path was for after diving. So the two years for me, technically, it's great. It's fine. Would I take four? Sure. I'll take whatever I can do. I mean, I'm just kind of like floating along this path that I've been given. So I don't really have any specific feelings of, oh, I needed four years or three years. I need less time. I need more time. I'm fine with what I've been given and I'm just going to kind of ride that wave. So how do you feel going into 2024? Like there's a winter nationals coming up the very beginning of December, I think. And then are they doing the world championships in place of the normal world cup? Cause usually it's in the Olympic venue mm -hmm. before the Olympics, but it looks like they're doing it somewhere else this year. Yeah. 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 So like, how does this all look for you and what are your kind of your hopes for this year? A lot has changed. They got rid of the world cups and now it's just four world championships. And then the world cups are merged with the world series. Yeah. I'm excited for this year and what's to come. Obviously I've got a couple of nagging injuries. I'm trying to work through. Yeah. I'm excited to put all the pieces together to get smart and to finally, it's like, I'm not doing all of these things. I just get to focus on diving, which has been like fantastic for me recovery wise. I'm looking forward to actually being able to walk into a competition feeling ready and I'm just going to give it a mile in that position. Is the knees over toes, are you still proactively doing that kind of programming too? Is that still helpful? Not really. We fall a lot of medical stuff and a lot of strength training stuff. There is this consistent dogma you run into of we have to follow this one way and this one way is going to be the way you hear that with squatting all the way down to your heels and then, or you have the other side, which is like, no, 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 just go to 90. But again, logic's found in the middle. And I learned this a lot from the strength coach that I've worked with, Mason Walters at the Olympic Training Center, who's hands down my favorite person to talk to and just learn from. And again, I kind of learned this, this message from him is be a mutt, learn from everyone. Everyone has really good pieces. Like the knees over toes guy, his name's Ben Patrick. He has so many beautiful lessons that people ran away from originally for a long time. You know, I was able to utilize all of those and then learn from all of these other people like Louis Simmons or Mason Walters himself, you know, Charles Poliquin. There's so many people in these spaces that are so intelligent. Why just pick one and shut out the rest when you can utilize everything from everyone? 
And so, yeah, there's pieces of the knees over toes programming, but one big thing recently that's helped my knees is actually getting out of the singular plane of motion. We do everything kind of forwards if you think about it. Even when we twist, it's in the sagittal plane of forward, forward, forward. But actually being able to work in other planes of motion has really like helped my knee doing lateral lunges and then kind of changing up these movements to make sure that the tissues are getting worked in more than just one in one way. So I still use the knees over toes stuff, but not entirely, not where it's just that one soul programming. I mean, I had a, a point, and that's why I think it's also smart to try other things because I've, I've done something different in every quad that I've trained through. And like the last one, I was doing lifting with our team and with an amazing strength coach and it was good and I was getting stronger and I was doing really big lifts, but like I was getting slower and slower off the platform and I felt awful. And so I just kind of was like, you know what? I'm going to just do something totally different. And I dropped it and I found a plyometric workout and my vertical went up two inches in like five weeks or something. So just sometimes you just need to step outside the box and, and try something different. Like you said, give it some time, see if it works or not, and then pivot, try, try different things. I think that's smart. Never settle, you know, like always be pushing for more. I think that's the beauty about a lot of these different types of training. And even when it comes to, again, fixing your own body with injuries is we're all so different. And so, you know, maybe just pushing weight for you wasn't the move. And so actually working on rate of force development, how fast can I fire off? How much can I be light and be quick and without the load after diving where you're you know loading up a back squat or a trap bar, it might've been just too much for you. And I think that's a beautiful thing that you went and tried something else and it worked. Like that is, I think the essence of what strength training should be is it should just be an additive that makes you better. I think a lot of strength coaches, and I've kind of run into this sometimes with some of the clubs is, you know, it has to be back squats, deadlifts, trap bar, like the conventional way. And what I've learned, and this is what I wish I did with my body when I was in high school, I tell them, no, I'm like, no, 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 walk away from that first. You want to teach these kids fundamental movements in all ranges of motion and all in a bunch of different ways. You don't want to just lock into, again, this like sagittal plane at all times. And so being able to really make sure that you know, they've got good plantar flexion and the hamstrings are strong enough to where we're not overloading them. I just want to make sure that, you know, their bodies are safe. That is my goal. Strength training is a slow burn, just like getting an Olympic pursuit. It's a long time investment that pays off at the end. If I can make sure that you're 20% more safe diving consistently and you're not hurting, that is everything. That's everything to me. I would pay a million dollars to make sure if I was in high school that I could have that because we run into these imbalances. And so you going to that plyometric programming is fantastic. And that's how it should be. I love it. Well, Brandon, how can we cheer you on through 2024? Because we want to see you in Paris. We want to see you having the meat of your life and enjoying every minute of it. So where can we follow you online to cheer you on and to learn more about you and follow your journey? I primarily post on Instagram. So Brando Lociavo. As you as you know, I, I started a podcast on YouTube. And so I'll talk about a bunch of different stuff like barefoot shoes, and then I'll talk to incredible athletes like yourself. Yeah, my YouTube is also Brando Lociavo. And so those are my two spots. And what's the name of your podcast? The podcast is The Performance Playbook. There you go. So go check out our episode together. But are you still doing your Substack too? 
the Substack took a backseat to the podcast just because gotcha. I got so obsessed with it. But gotcha. <laughs> I might repick that up once a week. Well, go check out his performance playbook. It's awesome. Brandon just asked the best questions too and gets awesome dialogue going. I saw a clip of you. I think it was Greg and you guys were talking about Betty White and like aging. And I, I was like, this is awesome. I love it. I absolutely love it. So you guys go check that out. Cheer for Brandon. Thank you, Brandon, for just being vulnerable with us, being honest about everything. It just makes it real and helps us learn and become better athletes and people as well. So thank you. Anytime. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show. This allows us to keep bringing on amazing guests, and it also helps other athletes to find this show. Make sure to check out the show notes to follow us on social media and learn more about our awesome guest. To hear all of our amazing episodes, head on over to thepursuitofgold.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pursuit of Gold is proud to be a Podigy production. That's all for now. Make sure to tune back in next week.